0: All right, I would not uh, torture any other human being in all of the world with reading Romans 16 other than myself. So, are you ready? Amen, Amen. Thank you. <laughs> We're gonna, um, If you're worried about my Greek pronunciation after this and you want to come like correct me, feel free. I'm open to critique. All right. I commend to you, our sister, Phoebe, a deacon of the church uh, of Senrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his calling and give her and any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Jesus Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Epentus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampelitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stychus. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, nailed it. Uh, (laughs) Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, uh, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet uh, Asinicris, Phlasian, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogos, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greeting. I urge you, verse 17, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about the obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you as does Lucius, Jason, and uh, Sopater, my fellow Jews. I, uh, Tertus, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and the brother of Quartus, send you their greetings. Now in him, who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for ages long past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Amen. Welcome to Grace Community. It's good to see you all this morning. Everybody who's here, I love you, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, everybody who's not here, not glad to see them, right? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put that out there. Uh, no, today's a good day. We do have a number of people today who've been ill and uh, a number of people who've been just struggled to get here with family kind of emergencies and things of that nature. So I do uh, want to do two things. One, just kind of def- maybe diffuse any low-level anxiety that's in the room, but also to ask you to pray, because there are a number of people in our congregation, a number of families who are enduring some, some sickness today. So if you just pray for them, uh, if you think of that, if the Lord brings that to your mind this week. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, I was very excited this week to finish up Romans. Next week, we begin the season of Advent with our first Sunday. Uh, Advent is my, yeah, it's my favorite season uh, of the year. The Christmas season is my favorite season, and it's also a wonderful time to be at church and to be together, so I'd encourage you. uh, Next week's going to be really special, I think. the uh the passage we're covering is going to be something that might not seem christmasy on the surface but in all realities it teaches us uh, something true about the coming of our lord so i'd encourage you uh this christmas season is going to be wonderful now i'm excited for this week are any, anybody else excited for Thanksgiving week? I am excited for Thanksgiving week, not because of the turkey, not because Ashley makes tremendous sweet potato pie. I am excited for this week because the Beatles documentary comes out on Thursday. Anybody, be any Beatles fans in the room? Uh, uh Peter Jackson, the guy who did Lord of the Rings is doing a three-part Beatles documentary. Um, it releases on disney plus on thursday and i'm very excited about it i was not one of those people who was raised on the beatles i really only started getting into that and honestly over the last year or two during lockdown in fact two years ago now i was listening to the beatles quite a bit but i'm very excited about this documentary if you're unfamiliar with it i'm just going to give you a primer just i'm like a walking advertisement for disney plus right now anyways Uh, this is a documentary that takes place over the final three weeks of really the Beatles life as a band. You know, they hadn't hadn't toured for three years and they went into the studio with the decision that in 21 days they were going to record a new album and then at the end of that 21 days they were going to play it live. And so they they put this incredible amount of pressure on themselves. They wrote like 15 songs in 21 days, which is incredible. And then the album Let It Be, if you're familiar with the song Let It Be, is on that album as as well as a number of other good ones. But it, it was this incredible feat. It was like this furious artistic endeavor that happened as like an explosion right at the end of their run as a band. And I don't know why I'm telling you about that documentary because it has nothing to do with what we're gonna talk about today other than the fact that when I was reading this chapter in Romans 16, all I could think of is I get by with a little help from my friends, right? It's just, it's just name after name of friend. Paul is writing this finishing, concluding the book of Romans with this eye towards his friends, his relationships. There are 25, 24 people named in this, uh, in this, believe me, I know I just read them out loud in public. Uh, there are 24 people named and one, 25 people referenced in this final concluding greeting of the book of Romans. And Paul, after all that has gone before in this book, all of the theology, all of the all of the kind of complicated and intellectual arguments he's making about all manner of things, after all of the dense spiritual work that Paul has put into his magnum opus that is the book of Romans, he concludes by writing to his friends. And specifically, he is asking his friends for some help because he says in chapter 15 that he wants to go to Spain take the gospel all the way west. And when he writes to the Romans, he says, I need your help to do that. I need your financial support. I need your prayers. I need your encouragement. I want to go to Spain. Now, we don't know if Paul ever got to Spain. We have no historical record of him having ever done that. We know that the gospel gets to Spain quite early possibly even within Paul's lifetime, but we don't know whether or not it's actually him that did it. We don't know if his plan that really spurred the writing of the book of Romans ever came to fruition. We know he wanted to. But we also catch from the end of this letter that Paul is quite clear when he, in, this, in this closing greeting that he is concerned for his friends. He needs some help from his friends, but he also cares deeply about them. Romans is the longest, the largest letter in the New Testament, and it gives us a glimpse, I think, of how Paul deeply cares for these people and he, want, he wants to see happen there. You know, at this time, the church in Rome was probably not very large. In in this final greeting, Paul uh, addresses directly maybe four or five house churches. Scholars kind of debate about how many house churches he's referring to. And any particular house church, depending on who was hosting it and the size of their house and the amount of money they might have had, probably only hold, held about 20 people. So we're saying... The, the church in Rome could be anywhere between 100 and 200 people, not a particularly large number of people at this time, but yet he gives this small group of people in a marginalized part of Roman society this, this beautiful letter of both encouragement and challenge and upbuilding and theology. He lays his heart out on the line for his friends in this letter, and he does it all for their upbuilding. Paul to encourage them towards a kind of end, that end being them glorifying, magnifying King Jesus with their lives, and then from that place of glorification, right, from that place of their love and reception of the gospel, they can then carry it on through through Paul's work as he goes about his missionary journeys, but for they themselves— as they continue the work of being kingdom people in the midst of a broken world and extending the goodness and grace of god out into the world this might be between 100 and 200 people at roman this time but in five short years five short years we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the roman society was turned upside down by christianity in only five short years there is a persecution of Christians that breaks out in Rome, the likes of which no one had really ever seen up until that point. And even amidst the persecution, as now hundreds of Christians are being killed, the gospel continues to expand and grow. You see the foundation that Paul lays with this church in Romans carries them through the next 300 years, actually, as Christianity spreads out from Jerusalem and Judea and into Rome and into the ends of the earth and becomes the most globally shattering, disorienting, powerful Holy Spirit movement that's ever existed in all of the world. And Romans lays the foundation for this. Now, Paul, like we said, is concerned in this passage that he mentioned his friends. And from this passage, this concluding passage, I really just want to do something very simple this morning. I just want to draw out three observations Three things that I think we can kind of just glean from this passage of scripture and take to heart this morning. I'm not going to try to be too tricky with you. Not, uh, I'll try not to say any words that you have to look up in a dictionary. I just want to be plain this morning and draw out three kind of basic observations that, but, but are ba- they're basic, but they're incredibly central. So. The first one, when you read through this passage of Scripture, this concluding chapter of Romans and his final greeting, one of the things that stands out most to you is all of the female names that Paul drops here. He's, he be, And most importantly, he begins the letter, not most importantly, but central, he begins the letter by talking to Phoebe. Phoebe is the carrier of this letter. She comes from the town of Sancreia. Now, Sancreia was like a suburb of Corinth. So, if you're familiar, you know, this. she's from Sancrea. So, if Waterloo is Corinth, Cedar Falls, Sancrea. But Paul commissions her to bring this letter to Rome. Now, that might sound insignificant. Maybe she was just going on a bit of business. Uh, many scholars believe that Phoebe, along with being a deaconess, something he calls her in this passage, was probably also a benefactor. She was probably a wealthy woman that was important in the church, and it was quite possible that she had some business she needed to attend to in Rome. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of commerce that went between Corinth and Rome. But what you need to know from this passage is that the carrier of a letter was, more, was responsible for more than just transportation of a letter. You see, the carrier of a letter was also the prime reader of this letter, and so Phoebe, as she went to, went to Rome with the letter, was probably also tasked with, uh, with reading it publicly to every house church in Rome. So let's say she reads it, uh, to, as, depending on how quick or slow of a reader you are, it takes roughly 90 minutes to read Romans out loud if you were to do it by yourself. So she reads through this, through this book five, four, five, six times out loud to these house churches in Rome. And the other thing that's important to to make mention of is that the reader of a letter was also responsible to instruct the hearers about the letter. So it's quite natural, especially if you've ever read Romans through, that that the audience might have a couple of clarifying questions that they need to ask Paul. Paul can get a little confusing sometimes in the book of Romans. And so Phoebe was the one who they would say, now, Phoebe, what what did Paul mean in verse 4 of chapter 5 when he said X? They didn't have verses, and they didn't have chapters, just FYI. So they would, they would say, what is, that, what is that part where we say this? And she would have to explain it to them. You see, in a real sense, Phoebe was the teacher of this letter to the churches she delivered it to. And that's important, because that places her... In a position of authority in the Roman church, something that Paul is not nervous about in any way, shape, or form. Now, continuing, Paul mentions another woman. Specifically, he mentions Priscilla. He he mentions, mentions Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are a ministry couple that come up multiple times in the scriptures. In verse three, he mentions them, but in the Uh, 18th chapter of Acts, you get a little further story of Priscilla and Aquila. Paul met them in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila were probably Jewish Christians who had been kicked out of Rome five years earlier, and so they were living in Corinth, probably with some friends, and they were also tent makers, just like Paul was a tent maker, and so they got down to making tents together, I guess. He lives with them, apparently, for a time, and they accompany Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And when Paul runs into what uh, historians tell us was probably one of the biggest, outside of the Twelve Apostles, one of the biggest hot-shot teachers of christianity in the early church a guy named apollos paul says priscilla and aquila you guys go instruct that guy because he's very smart he's got a lot of words but he needs to be discipled and so priscilla and aquila they go and they disciple apollos but notice one thing paul puts priscilla's name first which in the ancient world was very unusual that if you were a, a husband and wife team that the female's name would be first. It would almost always be the male name first and then the female name. Now this, we can't draw too many conclusions from this. It's just the way it appears on the page. But what we can draw both from the story of Priscilla and Aquila and from the way Paul references them is that they were equals in the work of, uh, of the gospel that they were equally uh, deacons in the church. It's important that we realize that Paul was not saying, now, Aquila, go tell your wife Priscilla that while you're doing the teaching, she should make a really mean casserole, right? Which is great. I'm all for casseroles. But my point being, it's really important that we keep this in mind. In verse 6, he references another woman. He references Mary. Now, Mary was the most common name in Jewish circles of the most ancient world, so we don't know if this is a Mary we've run into in Scripture before or not. We just know that she was notable, and he singles her out. And then he mentions, and this is my favorite one, he mentions in verse 7, Andronicus and Junia. Now, this one's special to me for obvious reasons. But specifically, I want to focus on that second name there, Junia, that name. Some uh, of your translations might have translated this Junius, which sounds masculine. It sounds a little, uh, but uh, that we know of in all of the extent or existing um, Greek and Roman material that we have, we do not have any historical record of there ever being a male name Junius. Doesn't exist. But we have Junia as a very common Greek name. And so what does Paul say here about Andronicus and Junia? First of all, he says that uh, they're particularly special to him and they're in his family in some way, so maybe one of them is a cousin and one of them is an in-law of some kind. We don't know the the relationship, but we know what he says about them. He says that they are outstanding amongst the apostles. Uh, The New Testament scholar Craig Keener translates this passage and says, another way you could translate this is that they are noteworthy apostles, meaning that this is one of the clearest occurrences we have in all of the New Testament of a female apostle. Pretty cool, right? Which is a very significant and important thing. I don't think it can be understated how important this is. Now, There are people who disagree with the assessment that I just gave you, okay? I'm just going to lay all my cards out on the table. But I am convinced. I'm convinced that this is a female apostle. So convinced that I was able to stake my youngest daughter's name on it, all right? So if you're wondering how strongly I feel about this, uh, I'm fully invested, all right? Now... uh, But that's not all the the women, right? In verse 12, he names Persisus, a woman who works hard. He talks about Rufus' mom, who's unnamed but is a mother figure for Paul. And he concludes by greeting a number of other women. So here's the conclusion this morning. From this list of female names and all of the titles that he assigns to each of them, We are quite supported in concluding that women were fully integrated into the life of the early church, occupying leadership roles where they instructed both men and women alike. There is not a single role in the church which women are not qualified to hold. I just want to say that full stop. There's not one role in the church that women are not qualified to hold. That's all the way from uh, Sunday school teacher pastor to preacher to denominational leader. The vision of the early church is one in which women were fully integrated into all levels of leadership. You know, unsurprisingly, just this week, uh, archaeologists uncovered uh, in a church site that dates back to about the third century where women are referred to as deacons. It was a significant find because in that part of the Christian world, uh, the, the Byzantine era or area they they hadn't had any record of females being in leadership in the church and yet just this week they dig these things up it's important to remember the point being and all of this I, you know it's a little bit of a hobby horse this morning but the point being the point being there are no second-class citizens based on gender in the kingdom of God all right amen there's no one who, uh, there's no one based on gender who's more capable of leading another person. But yet the Spirit of God gives gifts to the people of God, and then we exercise those gifts. And so any gift that we see in any person being displayed in the church, guess what we get get to do? We get to affirm it, and we get to fan it into flame, right? We get to affirm it, and we get to build it up regardless of whether that is a teaching gift in a young man or a teaching gift in a young woman, regardless of whether that's a a gift of leadership in a young man or a young woman. It doesn't matter. The Spirit of God gives gifts abroad, and we simply agree with what God has already done. That's our job. All right? All right. All right. So that's number one. Number two, unity, love, and warning. I want to call out this passage because I find it really interesting. Beginning in verse 16, this is what Paul says. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Paul often concludes his letters with a word of warning, something he's concerned about for the church. And it's fascinating to me that he couples his word of warning here with an an admonition towards unity, so he says, "Greet one another with a holy kiss," a practice that churches and Christians have done for thousands of years. Think of um, this is pr- this is probably more culturally appropriate in some place like Italy, right, or France, where you would greet one another with a kiss on one or the other or both cheeks. I don't know. I'm uncomfortable with it. It's in the Bible. I should probably get more comfortable with it. Anyways, let's keep it moving. Uh, uh, but Paul is concerned that there be a kind of unity in the. And he's, it's clear from his perspective that, that even though the Roman church is small, it is facing forces that are attempting to break it apart or to cause it to become ununified. There is some type of false teaching that is always bubbling around the church. And he uh, is attempting to warn the church that there is a kind of deception that is always working within it. Now, Paul is not arguing here for a kind of lazy unity, right? A lazy unity where we just kind of gloss over difference or we don't have difficult conversations. Anytime we talk about something that's important, right? It can, there can be moments of difficulty in that. But Paul is arguing here that through the bonds of peace, through a, a relational wholeness, through the, through the casting off of division, Paul says that we have resource, I would argue, to stave off some of the, some of the warnings that Paul has here. Some of the false teaching, with the, the flattering or, or smooth words that would uh, deceive people. It often happens in the church that those things which seem most slick, cool, or comfortable are very often, very often, The things that help us to kind of slide into a kind of um, disobedience. And Paul wants his audience to know that they need to be wise about what is good. That they need to actually employ their minds in a spirit of unity and to be innocent or unknowing right, about what is evil meaning this occurs for both large churches and small churches, because remember, Paul is writing to a fairly small church. He's saying that in this world of living as a kingdom people in the midst of the world, there is a call even there to not get sidetracked, to not get confused, and to not have our minds drawn in directions they shouldn't be drawn in. Now, I can't put my finger necessarily on what all of that is for us if we were to say well what is that deception what is that um, what, are, what, are, what is it people are deceiving us for what, what, are they, what appetites are people arguing for that we aren't paying attention to I don't have a clean answer to that question which is probably a good thing what I do have this morning is a warning like in, in a pastoral spirit be careful of flattery and smooth talk right in the language of Paul be careful of something that seems too easy or too comfortable. I'm not saying the Christian life is hard. The Christian life is grace. But grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And when we find our lives sliding a little bit, and we, when we find something that feels at moments too good to be true, very often that's not the thing we're called to. Very often that's not the thing we we're called to be or to do. You see, in the early church, this was probably something like just blend in with culture. Just do what they do. Just worship how they worship. Worship Jesus, but add all of the pantheon of other Greek and Roman gods to Jesus, and you can just kind of slide under the radar. Because what in Roman society, it wasn't illegal to have a god or to add a god to the pantheon. It was illegal to not worship all of the gods or the pantheon of Roman gods. And so to say, I'm ditching the pantheon, but I'm just go, running with Jesus was the thing that was going to get the church in trouble. And so the slide or the easy thing would probably to go, okay, let's just add Jesus to all of the other pantheon of gods, and we'll just run with that. And we love in America adding Jesus to all the pantheon of our gods. We love it. And I want to tell you, don't do that. Don't add Jesus to all of the other things that Americans worship. Because it will inevitably lead us on a slide that is not good. All right? All right. So that's observation number two from this passage. Observation number three is about how the gospel is proclaimed. Not what the gospel is, but how it is that the church proclaims the gospel. In verse twenty-five, here's what we read: Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden uh, for long ago, long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Paul does say the message of Jesus must first and foremost be proclaimed. That the church has this responsibility to be carriers, ambassadors, uh, messengers of the kingdom. We must proclaim the gospel. But he tells the church the way that the Gentiles might come to obedience in verse 26 is when the church in Rome themselves is established, in his language, in the gospel. The church must first be established itself in the gospel. The way that the message of Jesus is transferred then is first and foremost when the message or the gospel takes up residence in our midst. I think this is an important thing rooted and established in our hearts and in our common life biblically the gospel moves not from individual to individual and i think this is an important thing to keep in mind the kingdom of god moves from outpost to outpost i'm sure in many of you are, are are fans of like westerns like me and what did the you know in, the, in that really only 20 years where the West was actually wild, it was wild because law was not established in the West. There were, all kinds of, uh, there were all kinds of city-states, basically, that kind of established their own law. And what the United States government had to do was, over time, establish its rule and reign in the West. Does this make sense? But before the, the rule and reign of God, not God, of, of America, was established in the West, what did they have? They would have outposts, right? They had little little bastions of the American government that would exist in some place. And when you got in trouble, you ran to the outpost, right? Because it was not safe out there, but it was safe in here. Does that make sense? The gospel does not move from individual to individual. It moves from outpost to outpost, from expression of the kingdom, from a group of people together expressing the kingdom, to another group of people expressing the kingdom. Now, how does that look in praxis? Very often it looks like an individual communicating the gospel to another individual. But that individual, what do they do? They always go back to the outpost. They're always a part of this little kingdom community called a church. And so what Paul is saying is that in order for the gospel to be spread, I want first and foremost you in Rome to become an outpost of the kingdom. You must first become this little representative of the kingdom. You must become a witness to the world about the way I want to rule and reign in your shared life together. Before the message can go further, before it can go to, say, to Spain, it must be established in Rome. And then from Rome, it, there, it can be a, there can be an outpost of the kingdom in that place, and the message can continue to spread. You see, why this is important is because we as Americans are individualists, right? We think that all that matters is what I think and what I believe and what I tell somebody else about. But these people were not individualists. They were communal to the core. And so when they thought about what it meant to be the people of God, they thought about, guess what? Being a people. When they thought about salvation, they didn't just think about their own salvation. They thought about being a part of the community of the saved. And so when Paul prays for this church, what he says is he wants them to move. He wants them to develop into a people who look like a community of the saved. Does this make sense? And from that place, he begins to, he thinks that the gospel can then go out. And go out where? To all the Gentiles. Because there needs to be these outposts of love and grace and goodness, of compassion, of justice in the world before the message can go further. You see, there has to be an example of what a Jesus people look like before you can add more Jesus people to it, generally speaking. This is what Paul is saying. You see, a community of humility and grace must feel and be a safe place of welcome, a kind of new family where other people can be added to the number in order for the gospel to go forth. In short, to, uh, to quote one of my favorite people, there has to be a healthy expression of the kingdom of God in every community. Before the before the message of King Jesus can go out into that community in any effective way, and what that means by extension is that in each and every one of our hearts, here's the there's the communal part, here's the individual part, in each and every one of our hearts, there must be a kind of revival of the kingdom. You see, we individually need to see the the kingdom or the gospel be established in our lives, just as we need to see it established in an outpost of the kingdom, in a local community, in order for the good news to be spread. You see, first, the gospel needs to take up residence in our lives as well, right? And there's two ways that I see that the gospel needs to be established in individual lives in order for it to be established in our corporate life. And the first, and this is a very simple one, I hope it's simple, we need to, in order to be established in the gospel, we, we need to grow in our, within ourselves a deep love for Jesus. We need to grow in, in and of ourselves a deep love for Jesus, and we need to be a community where a deep love for Jesus is felt and experienced. The question is a simple one then. Do you love Jesus? Maybe you believe in Jesus. Maybe you've committed your life to Jesus. You you self-describe as a Christian. But do you love Jesus? Do you let the gospel establish itself in your heart to such an extent that you feel your love for Jesus growing deeper, that there are deeper roots of love for Jesus growing in your life? This is important, all right? All right. Now, I'm not saying that you must always feel a constant feeling of love for Jesus, right? I'm not saying that love for Jesus is tender feelings for Jesus. I deeply love my family, but I don't always feel tenderly towards them, right? But over time, over time and through intention, my love for my family grows. And in the same way, our love for Jesus can and should grow. But this world naturally is not a conducive environment for the growth of love for jesus in our hearts it's just not it pulls our hearts and our imaginations and our minds in all manner of different ways it is possible it is possible for our hearts to be like the church in ephesus in revelation when jesus instructs john to write to the seven churches and what does he say to revelation or to Eph- to ephesus He says that your love for jesus has grown cold now it's important for us it's important for us to always be very cognizant of that first barometer of healthy faith is my love for jesus growing maybe a different way of putting that is it deepening you see experiencing hard times being angry even being depressed those are not symbols of whether your love for jesus is is growing cold or or deepening it's not i wouldn't say those momentary experiences are it but i would say that over time and through intention our love for jesus should the way i like to describe it is like an anchor it's like an anchor of love that sinks down deeper into our hearts it it means that we're not blown quite by the wind quite as much it means the waves don't quite Uh, lap up over our boat the way they used to but the an anchor of love for jesus just begins to settle deep into our hearts It, it, it it settles deep into the bed of our lives and that and that love just grows and grows and grows this is what the normative christian life should be and this is what your soul and my soul are destined for I said I wasn't going to use a theological term, but I'm going to do it. Theologians call this the perichoretic union. It's a good one, right? It sounds really powerful. It's this idea that, that your life and my life, our ultimate destiny is to be caught up in the, this loving relational life of God. That our the whole of our lives, the whole of our being, was we were created to live amid the loving the loving being that is God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is what you are destined for, and if it's what you are destined for, as the gospel is established in our lives, we ought to be moving as we live closer to that reality every day. I know there are times when it does feel in our lives like love for Jesus is growing a little colder. I know that, and this isn't this isn't an opportunity to harp on you, but it is an opportunity to say that you pray and you, and you live and you worship and you, and, you re, and you refocus your heart on the things that truly matter. And you know that as you become the person that God has created you to be, love for Jesus will stream into your heart. Love for Jesus streams most into my heart when I, when I come to a, a fresh realization of God's grace. That there's nothing I can do to earn his love but that his love is always streaming towards me in the person of Jesus. That for me, that, medita- that place of uh, when I meditate on that reality is what does it for me. I don't know what does it for you. But love for Jesus ought to be deepening in our lives if we're to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. And the second thing is, <laughs> is similar. We must grow, as the gospel takes up root in our lives, we must grow into people of love. Now, I would argue that if you aren't, if you don't have a deepening love for God, if you're not being continually enfolded into the loving relationship that we see amid Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you're not ever really going to be able to love people very well. I said this a few weeks ago, I think at our outdoor service, but in order to love someone the way that God loves someone, you can't want anything from them. If you want something from another person, you don't love them selflessly right? You love them for you, for you. And all of our loves, and let's just be honest, we love everybody in some way, shape, or form for ourselves. We're n- none of our, none of our uh, emotions or affections or desires are 100% right, right? It's not like I do these two things perfectly and these three things really poorly. No, everything we do is kind of a mix of perfect and imperfect, but we ought to be growing as the gospel takes up residence in our lives, to become more others-focused, more others-centered, and less self-centered, less concerned about the way I'm being perceived, less concerned about what people might think about me, less concerned about what other people can do for me, and more concerned with how best I can love the other. You see, if we are doing these things, if we are growing a deeper love for Jesus in our lives, and by extension, then learning to love others just like Jesus loved them, and we're growing a deeper love for Jesus. We can't help but see the gospel established in our lives and in our community. It is the natural byproduct of hearts that are directed towards Jesus, directed towards God, and directed towards others. And it's when those things begin to align in our lives in powerful ways, Joss, if you could come up, that'd be awesome. When those things begin to align in our lives in powerful ways that we see all manner of beauty begin to occur. You see, when these things start to align, we see fertile ground for the kingdom of God that is able to expand. You see, the reason the early church was such a powerful force in the world is that They loved not their lives, even unto death. Because they knew that there was never going to be anything that was going to separate them from the love of God. Not height or depth, not angels, nor demons, nor principalities. There was nothing that was going to be able to separate them from the love of God and Christ. And so they were free to love others in such a way as as they became a very appealing group of people. Have you ever known anyone in your life that was just full of compassion and love? Didn't act, didn't require anything of you when you were with them. Was just all giving and, and, and was just, didn't, didn't take. You weren't a taker. Chances are that person was able to do that because they, they, they lived off a source of life that was not you. Right? They, they, In life didn't come from you, which is very freeing, right? If you can move through the world not feeling like your energy needs to come from other people, but rather you get it from another source, you become far freer. You become a person of love in the world. You become more the person that God has created you to be. And Paul, for his friends, for this community, this small community of Christians, where there was all manner of difficulty, where there was all manner of struggle, longed to see the gospel rooted and established in Rome in such a way as that the gospel would transform individual lives, transform communities, and transform other communities that hadn't even caught a glimpse of it yet. You see, Paul is like this ultimate visionary. He sees off over the horizon all the work that the gospel longs to do in the world. And yet he's just looking at like 100 or 200 people in Rome. The whole church. In a city of, I don't know, a million people. Just 100 or 200 people. And he knows it's going to revolutionize everything. He knows it. Because of the difference that it's made in his life. And the difference that he's seen it make all over the world up until then. And so would you stand with me this morning? So in this place... Our commitment, maybe our takeaway this morning, is that God, the Holy Spirit, wants to root us in the gospel. And the way in which he wants to root us in the gospel is by helping us individually to deepen our love for Jesus and to deepen our love for other people. And so in an attitude of prayer this morning, you just search your heart for a moment? And maybe the Holy Spirit just wants to point out to you an area or two where, maybe it's an area where you hadn't loved somebody the way that Jesus was calling you to love them. Maybe you feel kind of acutely some area of your life where you just, love for Jesus has been slightly more difficult. Invitation into a deeper walk with Jesus. Invitation to a more loving walk with others. Invitation by the Holy Spirit to be the people of God, not for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. For the sake of hurting and broken people that live all around us. You see, God wants to captivate our hearts. And he wants to give us a vision for the kingdom that is bigger than us. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we pray this morning that we would deepen our love for Jesus and that in that process of having uh, having the anchor of our love for Jesus sink deeper into our hearts, God, that we would find in that place a deep love for other people. And that by so doing, we would become a people of the kingdom of God, the grace community, become a place where the gospel is continually established and that we would become an outpost of the kingdom of God in this community and that people would see and know by the virtue of the way we love them and by the virtue of the way we love Jesus, the goodness of the kingdom and the the life of Jesus that desperately wants to have them be a part of the party. And so Jesus, this week, as we go about the beginning of the holiday season, we give ourselves over to you. We say, Holy Spirit, have your way in our lives and in our hearts. Would you deepen our love for Jesus this weekend? Would you deepen our love for maybe that family member that gives us a little bit uh, of side eye when we say that thing that they don't like? Would you deepen our love for all of the crazy amount of people that we see on Black Friday and we worry about because why would you ever want to do that to yourselves? Would you, would you deepen our love for the people we dislike the most? Would you help us to love our enemies, and would you help us to find God, to discover afresh the beauty of Jesus, and it's in that name that we pray, amen, and amen. Well, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, it's been good, it's been good to be in Romans, but I'm excited to get on to this season of Advent. Uh, this week, if you're out and about doing your shopping, don't forget we're taking donations for Caden Cl- Caden's Closet. You can drop that off at church next week. Uh, would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ?